Welcome to The Antique Show. We talk antiques, collectibles and art and all the news and events from Australia and around the globe. Here's your host, Jason Harris. Oh, voiceover guy, thank you so much. You do an amazing job as you do every single week. Welcome to episode five of The Antique Show. And I am absolutely 100% excited to be presenting this show today. Why is that? Because I love what I do. I've been in this industry for just a little over 30 years. And it is the most dynamic, energetic, colourful industry you could be involved in. Let's have a look at this week's show. Before we do, of course, our man behind the glass, Mark, he's our show producer, does a huge amount of work behind the scenes to get this show up and running. We also have a new email address, and that is antiqueshowdownunder at gmail.com. That is antiqueshowdownunder at gmail.com. So this week's show, we are going to learn about Arita, Katani and Satsuma as we dive deep into Japanese porcelain. We'll discover that even in death, we have collectibles. This is a really bizarre one. This is in weird stuff we collect. And we also talk about why things are rare, collectible and why tastes and fashions change. Now, before we go to the news, I want to make a call out to my listeners. And I do appreciate those who come back every week, every episode of The Antique Show. I want to share the love. As I said earlier, I'm passionate about what I do. And I love my industry. I love the antiques, the auctions, the art, the history that's involved. It's vibrant, it's colourful, it's bright. If you've got a colleague, a family member, a friend, who you think would also enjoy this podcast, I ask that you share it with them. I want to get more and more listens. I want to get everyone together so we can learn together, we can grow together, and we can also enjoy the auction, art, and antique industry. Anyway, that is it for the introduction. Now, to the news. The auction and antique news brought to you by The Antique Show. And starting with some local news, an incredibly rare Australian £100 note has set a new world record at auction with an Australian private collector ultimately paying more than half a million dollars to own it. It was a 1914 issued note that was discovered in a Tasmanian deed box in the mid-70s and it's traded hands between collectors but relatively rarely. Bidding opened about $210,000, but the pri- final price was expected to be around about $350,000, eventually going for $410,000, way surpassing expectations. Okay, now this one I do want a little bit of duress, but it is collector's news, so I need to read it out. You know those little oshies they're called? This is the Woolworths answer to the Coles Little Shopper promotion. Apparently, a rare Simba, which is one of the characters in Lion King, sold on eBay for $100,000. Yep, $100,000 for a small bit of plastic. Now, oddly enough, the sale fell through. It started at $10,000, and with 108 bidders or bids, it eventually sold for $99,900. It was described as an ultra, ultra, super, super rare toy. 
An Oshi is a small thing you put on the top of your pencil and the kids take them to school. And they are, look, they are collectible. There are, you know, what they've done, they've done it really well. Apparently there's only a handful of these rare ones made. There's another one which is a fur-covered one, I, I believe, and there's only a hundred of those. And they sell for, you know, $3,000, $4,000, $5,000. This comes with a big risk, however. And that is if you spend $3,000 or $5,000 on a collectible that is not proven in the market, you have the risk of doing your money in. It's not like a long-term collectible like some of the enamel signs or the petrol or even perfume bottles or lusterware, anything like that. These are unproven collectibles. In that sense, they are haven't been around long enough to have repeating sales. So I do say, at your own risk, good fun story though, um, but I wouldn't get too too highly involved in it. I hope I don't get a letter from Woolworths. Anyway, we're going to move on to some international news and we're going to talk about Fairyland Luster. This is one of the prettiest pieces or ranges of porcelain I think has ever been produced. It's made by Wedgwood. It is a distinctive and ornamental pieces and they are very different from the unglazed jasperware and smooth glazed creamwares which Wedgwood is most famous for. They combine bright colours, luster glazes, gilding with whimsical motifs to create a fantasy world of sprites, fairies and goblins. And they're usually in exotic architectural, oriental or woodland setting. So anyway, the reason I'm talking about this is there's a huge auction of Fairyland Luster coming up at US Auction House Skinner's. And this is a great story, this one. This is about a rare watercolour. So whilst most items prove to be standard fare, occasionally a rarity is bought into a charity shop, such as a watercolour of figures of the Piazza in Venice, which was donated to St Margaret's Hospice in Minehead, North Somerset, obviously in the UK. Now, upon receiving the work, the staff at the branch decided to take it to a local auction house, Lawrence's, for assessment. And it was signed by William Wilde and dated 1839, although the condition was compromised by some fading and some foxing. The watercolour was estimated at 600 to 900 pounds and drew a lot of competition before it was finally knocked down for 2,400 pounds. And that money goes to charity. I reckon that's an awesome story. Okay, this is described as extremely rare. It's a 1930s Leitz accessory. It's a photo gun, and it's been snapped up for a hammer price of £138,000. So what is a photo gun? So I've got a picture in front of me. It is literally the stock of a rifle. It has two triggers, and at the end where the barrel would normally go is a, a standard-looking camera. The only difference is it's got a very long eye or viewfinder on it. Quite an amazing piece of kit, this one. Two lobby cards for the 1931 film Dracula led Heritage Auction's latest sale of movie posters when each sold for a six-figure sum. The two cards both showing Hungarian actor Bela Lugosi uh, in different forms sold to collectors. The first one selling for a final hammer price of 95,000 US dollars. And this had a very few unobtrusive pinholes, but in overall good condition. The second one sold for 85,000. That's quite an amazing price for two Dracula lobby cards. And into book news. Now the first piece of book news, there's some adventure books by Enid Blyton, The Island of Adventure. 
These sold for £360, but what makes it significant is it is just £10 short of an auction record set for this copy, uh, which originally sold back in 2006. The second piece, and this is probably more interesting for me, and this is Winnie the Pooh. This is one of my childhood favourites. This is a signed first edition set. So this is four books, and they included When We Were Very Young. Now, this was published in 1924. So the four books sold at Sotheby's online for £24,000. That is the news for this week. Word of the Week. Chinoiserie. It's a French word from Chinois, which means Chinese, and it is the European interpretation and imitation of Chinese and East Asian art. Chinoiserie. Discover to find unexpectedly. Okay, we're going to talk about Japanese porcelain. Now, a warning here, this is a very, very big subject. And it's not something that I could easily cover in one episode. There are so many terms that we use and, and often to a novice or a beginner, they can be quite confusing. And you might even misuse some of these terms. So what I'm gonna do is actually look at the history this week. And then over the next few episodes, we'll look and dive a little bit deeper into each of the subsets of Japanese porcelain. Now with that in mind, I love Japanese porcelain. It's something that even early on in my career, I thoroughly enjoyed it. There was something not only very tactile about Japanese porcelain, but it was also extremely decorative. From your blues and whites to your underglazed aritas to the overglazed amaris that had beautiful bright colours, to Satsuma. Now Satsuma, for me, was the penultimate of the collectibles. It was also purely made for the export market. So rarely did you find Satsuma in the uh, local market, the internal market. It was all made, or mostly made, for the export market. Now, bearing in mind, the Dutch East Indies companies were company, or the boats were everywhere through the, the eastern provinces, the eastern countries, and they were doing huge imports into Europe. All right, so let's look at the history of Japanese porcelain. And what's surprising to me is... It's not a very long history, especially considering how old Japan is and how old the culture is. Certainly the production of pottery is quite old. It can date back to very early times, almost to the Stone Age times or Neolithic times, but the act of making porcelain is quite new. And a lot of the earlier pieces we see uh, were very much associated with tea ceremonies and other type of ceremonies, and they weren't in common utilitarian use. So they didn't have teacups and saucers sitting around the home. They were used purely for ceremony. And there's a couple of theories about how porcelain first came to Japan. Um, One of the theories is about Um, About the early 16th century, um, a gentleman by the name of Sonju bought back the secrets of its manufacture from Chinese kilns in Jingzhen, uh, which I think is uh, Guangzhou now. Um, Other accounts, and this is probably the one that is more identifiable, and that is a Korean potter uh, came over to Japan, was bought over by um, Hideyoshi, and the... Korean potter, a sampai, 
found porcelain clay in the Izumi Mountains, which is near Arita, which is the Saga Prefecture. And this is around about the 16th century, so late 16th century. That's probably the more plausible explanation of how porcelain was first founded, I suppose, or first developed in Japan. So we're talking around about 1580, 1590 thereabouts. Now, the first Arita manufacturer was decorated in blue underglaze. And as I said earlier, it really was to mimic the Chinese porcelains that were exported into Japan. And these specimens of Arita manufactured porcelain soon found their way to Europe through the Dutch ships of the uh, VOC or the uh, Dutch East Indies Company. Um, and the, the Dutch had a monopoly on trading through the uh, eastern area into Europe uh, around about 1641. And a lot of the Japanese export wares are based on contemporary European metalwork and faience. So they're essentially creating works uh, that's primarily suited the European market. However, full export production of Japanese porcelain started in the 17th century, um, later than that of Korea and China. And the reason for this is the Chinese pretty well had the trade uh, wrapped up. But civil war, and that was the transition between the Ming and the Qing dynasties. So Qing is actually spelled Q-I-N. People sort of say Qing, but it's actually Qing. So the, there was a civil war when uh, the civil war disrupted the production. The Japanese porcelain market then flourished. Now, the Japanese at the same time had the uh, Sakuko policy, which is essentially an isolationist policy, and that dated for 220 years. That was from 1633 to about 1853, and that severely limited the relations and trade with other countries. And the Dutch East Indies companies had exclusive rights in which to buy and export um, huge, what then became huge quantities of porcelain. Now, here's this for a figure. In 1659, the Dutch East India Company placed an order of 65,000 pieces. Now, it took the Arita kilns over two years to fulfil the production. So 65,000 essentially put Arita on the map. It became the epicentre of Japanese porcelain. By the beginning of the 19th century, a great deal of styles and manufacturing centres were in place, and Japanese porcelain exports expanded hugely, but quality also declined. And they started producing a lot of customary porcelains that imitated some of the older styles. So they're essentially making reproductions of their own items. So that's it for the history of Japanese porcelain. And we looked at, in this episode, of Arita and Katani and even Amari and Kakamon, all being from the same area. Now, remember, Arita is actually a port, and hence why it got its name. Over the next episodes, I'm going to dive deeper into each of the different styles of porcelain, including my favourite Satsuma. So please join us in the oncoming or the forthcoming episodes for more on Japanese porcelain. I invite you to visit Learn Antiques, where you can read, watch, learn and grow. www.learnantiques.com.au There's articles, news, video and podcasts, and it's all for free at Learn Antiques. www.learnantiques.com.au As the old saying goes, the only things that are inevitable in life are taxes and death. Now this might seem a very macabre subject, but so is death. There's a Latin phrase, memento mori, 
remember you will die. And there's a whole science and sociology about how we either celebrate the death and passing or how we mourn the death and passing of a loved one. For our Western society, for England, for Europe, and, and certainly for Australia, there's a certain class of jewellery called mourning jewellery. I'm not talking about something you wear as you get up out of bed and you put on the jewels or the pearls. I'm talking about the jewellery you would wear after someone close to you has passed away. And that might be one of your children or it could be your spouse. Now, typically, the males died earlier. So mourning jewellery. The history of mourning jewellery goes back a fair way. And we were talking you know, some pieces as early as the 16th century. But it is widely associated with the Victorian era. And there was a couple of reasons for this. The main one being mass production. So they were able to mass produce it, which meant it brought the price down. It was more affordable for the masses. And it certainly reached its high point after the death of Prince Albert in 1861, when Queen Victoria and a lot of the royal family members wore black clothing to match their mourning jewellery. And just by default, mourning jewellery is typically black. And it can be made from either jet, which is fossilised coal, or less expensive alternatives like black glass, black enamel, vulcanite, which is hardened rubber, or bog oak, which is really a brown colour rather than black. And the more expensive versions might have also had semi-precious or precious stones set in there. It also might have been highlighted with gold, but typically it would be a black substance of some sort, and maybe either gold or, or gold plate around the outside. And some of the designs, even though they were mourning uh, pieces, whether they're rings or brooches or pendants, they were highly ornate in a lot of ways. There's also a segment of the mourning pieces that were made with human hair. And they might have had, you might have seen brooches in your antique shop that have got human hair, like a locket of hair in the back, or they might have had a weaving of hair through it, or you might have actually found an entire bracelet or necklace made of woven human hair. Now, probably one of the falsities within the antique industry is that that hair was of your loved one, and it, it wasn't. It, it, well, sorry, it typically wasn't. In the 19th century, 50 tonnes of human hair were imported to England each year to be used by the country's jewellers. So why do we wear mourning jewellery? Think back of the time, the era that we're in. This is pre-photography. So these days, and I've experienced, and a lot of us have experienced the passing of someone close, you would have a photograph of them on your bedside or somewhere in the house. They didn't have the ability to take photographs. So the only other option were either a portrait, which was horribly expensive at the time, or you would wear mourning jewellery. So the family would save to have this piece made, and it was the touchstone, something to remember the loved one by. And something else interesting I came across, and something I was aware of, but I think I'd put it to the back of my mind, it's, it's called death photography. And it literally is as macabre as what it sounds. I'll save that for another episode because it is wildly bizarre and something that needs a lot more research and explanation. Anyway, so you'd wear your mourning jewellery for sometimes one year, two years, sometimes even up to three years, depending on, on your own beliefs. So mourning jewellery certainly had a huge significance within the Victorian period, and now we see it transition to a highly collectible piece. And if you go online and just search for mourning jewellery, there are some fascinating pieces out there. And some of the more bizarre pieces I found, I found one today, which was a man's ring, and it was gold, 
that had an ebonized finish. And on that ebonized finish, which is a black finish, there was etched in a skeleton all the way around it. And it had the Latin phrase, memento mori on it. But what was also bizarre is in the top, it had a semi-precious stone, which was cut into the shape of a coffin. And underneath that was etched a skeleton. So that's, you know, it was a really, really bizarre piece. Highly fascinating. Highly collectible as well. Now, pieces can sell from as low as $100 and $200 for something that is Pinchbeck's gold, which is, you know, fake or poor man's gold, which is plated, up to some very, very expensive pieces which have sapphires or diamonds. They weren't as blingy as your normal evening or cabaret wear, because remember, you were in mourning, so you couldn't have something too showy. So it was subtle, nice pieces of gold, maybe semi-precious or precious stone. But either way, a very, very fascinating part of our culture, mourning jewellery. And if you'd like some further research, I found a fascinating website by a brilliant historian and collector of mourning jewellery, Hayden Peters. And his website is called The Art of Mourning. Absolutely jam-packed with everything you want to know. There's articles, there's videos, and there's even some audio there about mourning jewellery. Normally I'd be interviewing someone now, which is a great shame because my guest was unable to make it today. So instead, I thought I'd address one of the most common questions I get asked as an auctioneer and evaluator, and that is, why is my Victorian dining table not worth the same as what it was worth 15 or 20 years ago? And on the surface, it could be as simple as saying there's less demand for your table. And look, that's very true. But when you look deeper into this subject, it goes to fashions and trends it also goes to simple economics of supply and demand. So I thought what I would do is unwrap the question of why are collectibles and antiques worth more now? Or why do they increase and decrease over time? So here's some factors to consider, some questions to ponder. Firstly, rarity. How many were originally made and how many are there now? That obviously affects the price. The original price, were they really expensive when they first came out or were they really cheap? So for example, the Oshies that we covered in the news, they have zero value to buy. I mean, you, you've got to go and buy your you know, cornflakes and milk anyway and you just get these as part of a promotion. So they have zero value. Are they rare? No, there's millions of them, I'm sure, except for the ones where they limit the production to only 100 Taste is the third thing to consider. Is it currently in vogue? And what changes tastes? And why do tastes change? The fourth one is fad. Is it a fad? Is it currently popular, but is it going to be short-lived? And certainly things like the Oshies and the, uh, the other thing the Coles are doing, they will be short-lived collectibles for now. But it'll be interesting to see what happens in 30 or 40 years' time where they become rarer. So the fad then converts into a collectible. Now, so I remember 30 years ago when I was a, a wee lad, naive lad, and I first got into the auction industry and I was seeing the end of the Georgian era. So the prices for Georgian furniture was through the roof and I was starting to see Victorian furniture. Antiques were coming in and they were 
the next contender essentially. So we started seeing Chester draws come through and they're getting $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 for a nice eight draw seat of chess and dining tables were getting huge money and the antique shops were full of expensive Victorian furniture and they just couldn't get enough. You know, we were doing up Victorian cottages and we were housing or decorating them with this brown furniture that was highly ornate and lovely. Now, the Victorian cottages, as I said, were being fully restored and there were beautiful timbers under that 1950s thick white paint and they were once again revealed to the air. And I remember those chests that I said, but also the dining suite selling for, you know, five or $10,000. I remember going down on the road one day and one of the biggest antique shops, the most expensive antique shops at the time, had a dining suite for $30,000 and it was an investment at that time. And logically, it was actually an investment. It was something you could sink your money into and, and feel at the time that you would get exponentially more for it. That's what investments are. You don't really want to lose an investment. So what changed? Well, let's look back slightly again. The Victorian era is just not a one-off either. Um, over the past 30 years, I've seen the comings and goings of Georgian furniture, Victorian furniture, country, Australian Germanic, depression and or Australian bush furniture. We've seen French, we've seen shabby chic, we've seen Edwardian, we've seen deco, industrial, and now we're in the thick of the Danish and the Australian retro. And it's not just furniture trends and cycles that change. Art cycles change, cars, porcelain, collectibles, all experience the same fluctuations of price and collectability. So why do we experience these cycles? What drives them? What drives the price change? And this is the question I ponder. If you can unlock that, then you've got a better idea of what is coming up next. So it's a big topic. It's too complex to cover in one episode. So I'm going to wrap it over the next few months as well. So with this in mind, I thought I'd tackle what drives change. Let's look at taste. Let's look at that fashionable or that horrible saying on trend. What's on trend at the moment? So what changes? So in simple economics, there's a law of supply and demand. So if demand outstrips supply, a price will increase. Right, this is basic stuff. And so too, if an item or a trend is in fashion and more people want to surround themselves, then there's higher demand and so the price will increase. And vice versa, as demand decreases, so does the price drop. But then why do fashions change? Now, it's hard to relate our industry to any other industry. So for example, the fashion industry, and I don't know a lot about the fashion industry, but my perception is that it changes seasonally. So you have changes twice per year, summer and winter. The new designs are released on the market. However, the overall trends, for example, ice wash jeans, last seasons, but eventually, and luckily for ice wash jeans, they change. So the designs of the jeans might tweak, but the overall trend of wearing that ice wash moves slower. So then we look at what actually predicates the move. And in marketing and innovation, there's a theory called the five adopters. And in simple terms, the five groups are the innovators, the early adopters, the early majority, the late majority and the laggards. So if you can picture a bell curve, the innovators are on the left-hand side at the very thin wedge of the bell curve, the laggards are at the right-hand side thin wedge, and in the center, you have the early majority and the late majority. 
So they say around about 2.5% of the population are the innovators, 13.5% of the early adopters. Then you've got 34% are the early majority, 34% the late majority, and 16% are the laggards. So why is this important? Why do we look at a bell curve to explain these? How does it relate to our cycles? So when something is discovered, when there's an innovation of some sorts, it is the innovators and the early adopters who are very close behind, who are the ones that say, you know what, I'm not going to follow the trends. I'm going to go out and do what I want to do. And we actually need these people. They're the ones who are on the cutting edge. They're on the tip of things. And this is used, this same innovation, this same adopter theory is actually used in marketing as it is in computers and other technology. And then as the early adopters have taken up this new trend or fashion, the early majority, so this is now we're talking about the masses, we're talking about 34% of the population on average, then look over and say, hey, that looks pretty good over there. Let's go and try some of this. So typically the innovators and the early adopters are mostly moving on to the next new thing, design, fashion or trend. Then the early majority are following suit, while the late majority and the laggards are still wondering where everyone is going. Now I feel the impetus for change for the innovators and the early adopters, however, is when the early majority group start showing interest. In auction terms, I've seen this when the retail markets and large chain stores start selling similar items. And this brings in the early and the late majority groups. And as demand increases, so do the prices. When you think about the early majority makes up 34% and the late majority another 34%. So we're talking 68% of the market. What then happens is the marketplace heats up and the prices become unsustainable. So for example, the current retro trend, retail stores are making reproductions and auction prices are going through the roof and it's mostly now unaffordable. Now so for me, that says we have change ahead of us. Now that might be two years, three years, five years, whatever it might be, but that for me, we're now at the top of the bell curve and we're now on the slide down. Now in the 17th to the mid 20th century, new trends, fashions and furniture and home styling were mainly influenced by innovations in material, which led to innovations in design. And I looked up today, plastic. So I'm not sure whether you're aware, but plastic was first invented in 1862 by a gent by the name of Alexander Parks. It was called Parkzine. Now Parkzine or plastic, when it was invented, it was expensive, it was brittle, and it was highly flammable. However, it led to new inventions of new products, and then it led to mass production. So when I look at a table, we see Parkzine, followed very closely by cellulose, by polyvinyl, which is PVC. Then we saw viscous rayon, and that was 1894. That led to then cellophane. And then we had the first uh, phenol formaldehyde, which is trademarked as Bakelite, and that was in 1909. In 1926, we had vinyl, uh, or PVC. We also then had low-density polyurethane. Then after that, we had acrylics, and that was still talking 1936. On, after that, we had polyurethane come out, polystyrene, then we had PTFEs, we had nylon and neoprene in 1939. So you can see, as you can see from the very brief explanation, as new materials were invented, it changed the way designers were able to design and then mass produce products. 
So for example, when we talk about Bakelite, so pre-1909 when Bakelite was essentially invented, most radio cases were made of wood because it was easy to work with, it was easily accessible. Along comes Bakelite. Now Bakelite could be moulded into any shape you wanted to. And the designers looked at this and said, you know what, pop, we could do whatever we want with this. We can make something look like the Empire State Building, make it look like a football, make it look like a, 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 the brow of a Mickey Mouse. All these things changed the way items were produced and then predicated the change in fashions and design. So now we've got the industrial designers were unleashed upon these amazing designs. They were able to dream up whatever they wanted to do. So we've seen this also with furniture. In the 17th century, furniture was rare. It was expensive. You'd probably make your own table. You'd probably have a stool, but chairs themselves were quite rare. You wouldn't have a wardrobe, and chests were really only for the wealthy. And as living conditions changed from one small room cottage to a multi-room home, you actually needed more furniture. So the number of craftsmen increased and the number of timber mills increased, which gave us greater accessibility to not only the raw material, but also people to work the material. And then designers were influenced by travel to other countries and innovation, not only in furniture design, but also furniture making techniques. So this only briefly explains the reason for change and why we have changes in our fashions and trends. However, there's more to the story. And over the next episodes, we'll look at the effects of the original price, rarity, and fad on collectability and on price. Prepare yourself. Okay, let's go. And this week on What Stuff Is Worth. I actually laugh at that, What Stuff Is Worth. But what do you call it? It's a collection of stuff, things that we collect. In the sale last Monday, which was... Sale number 374, that was on the 5th of August 2019, just in case you're listening in the future. And on the back of the huge prices we're getting for retro and mid-century furniture. Lot number 170 is a coffee table, beautiful cigar leg mid-century teak table, coffee table with a magazine rack underneath. That sold for $300. No real surprises there, but still shows the strength in that market. And there's also some dining chairs, and these are also a mid-century, a little bit later, maybe 1970s. They were made by Noblet. Really nice set of six. You can picture the cigar legs, but longer. And they had a really nice wraparound seat for even for the carver and the normal chair in a really nice uh, black vinyl. They sold for 420 for the set. There's also a large rug, and for whatever reason, large rugs are getting really good money. Now, this measured... 3.6 by 4.6 metres, so a huge rug, really nice tones, really nice thick red border, a Shah Abbas centre on it, that sold for $1,900. Lot number 1,098, this is a cute little scent bottle, so a scent bottle is a perfume bottle, and it's a, a lovely little bottle shape with a nice gold stopper. Now the, the hinge was all faults on the case itself, but overall in really, really nice condition, that sold for 420 Lot number 1214, lot number 1214, the surprise of the auction, Militaria. These are a set of framed medals, correspondence and ephemera belonging to the Hurst brothers. So that is Herbert Reuben Hurst and Kenneth Thomas Hurst. 
they had they were in the paratroopers as well so it had not only the paratroopers had their war medals in a really nice frame presented very beautifully now we thought maybe one to two thousand dollars end up selling for five thousand seven hundred dollars lot number one two five four some cutlery a beautiful set of George Jensen mid-century flatware. And it's a really, really nice set. That sold for $1,100. And finally, and this is a run we had on some Danish porcelain by a designer called Bjorn Wimblad. I've never seen this design before. It had the typical whimsical Bjorn Wimblad designs of these comical characters frolicking in uh, the fields or in, in uh, bushland scenes but it was a very subtle gold and white. Anyway, it was a, a coffee set and it was part of a few other lots that we had. This coffee service in particular sold for $1,700. So that is what it's worth this week. All of the prices are online at scammels.com.au, an awesome resource if you want to do any research, simply search for the word and you'll see in our past sales everything that we've sold, a photograph, and the price that it's achieved. That's the Antique Show brought to you by Scammel Auctions and is produced by Antique Education Proprietary Limited and features on learnantiques.com and the podcast Podbean for the Antique Show. Copyright 2019.